0: Welcome to the Novel Discord Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I'm Sam, joined this week by Webb, because Andy is out on paternity leave. And uh, he picked he picked a really bad week to be out on paternity leave. Because I don't know if you saw the group chat. Did you see what just came off hot off the presser today?
1: No, I actually didn't. I have I've not been engaged in the group chat. I was doing some research for the pod here.
0: You know that DeBaby and Ezra Miller are like in a hotly contested race right now to see who could be the shittiest person alive and uh, (laughs) Ezra Miller Ezra Miller just like lunged out of the finish line did you read this story about okay let me just read you this headline we
1: need go telly on this Ezra Miller has been he's just been topping himself one after another uh what's the latest
0: this headline is called guns bullets and weed (laughs) colon (laughs) Ezra Miller housing three young children and their mother at his Vermont farm I thought he was so, in Hawaii. I thought he was causing hell in Hawaii. What, what he happened? He was. He was on a heater in Hawaii for a little while, but then there's this story where he's got this farm in Vermont, which I just feel like every every layer of the Ezra Miller onion that you peel back, there's another weird thing about him. But right, I didn't, right. Like, it's not weird in and of itself to have a a farm in Vermont. I'm sure it's beautiful this time of year, but the fact that it's him.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's weird for Ezra Miller to have a farm in Vermont. Yes, very sus
0: yeah it's like if you have a you know if you've got a mansion a sprawling mansion that has like a ferris wheel or in a, in a merry-go-round that's cool but if Michael Jackson has it it's really weird right that's <laughs> um, yeah, really creepy you talked about why is he not in Hawaii well this <laughs> this lady and her kids are from Hawaii he like met them in Hawaii oh, God. and flew them out to his his farm and there's a father that uh, Rolling Stone contacted the father he was like I'm really worried I don't know what they're doing <laughs> It just sounds, like, so horrible. Uh, he took photos that included, like, the, a one-year-old child had, like, a bullet in its mouth. Really weird stuff. Oh yeah, God. photos of them and guns. It's really weird. Yeah. So Ezra es- es-
1: Miller has graduated from assault and battery to human trafficking.
0: Basically. Good Lord, man. Someone needs to come yeah, get he, their mans. Yeah, he, he is on one right now. Like, I, you know, I, I've always heard that comparison is a thief of joy. But I think there's something to be said about comparing yourself to people that are just going off the rails and being like, well, at least I'm not that. Like,
1: Yeah, I, that, oh, that, that's a large part of our group chat. I've noticed the pattern. It, we, we're always just throwing people out who are clearly like the Ezra Millers of the world and be like, this piece of shit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Look at this guy. Make it, make it ourselves feel better. At least I'm not better. him. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so same By Me, film, yeah. 1986. Well, actually, let, let, let's start by saying this. Let's not just call it a film. This was based largely on, in fact, it's almost, in some parts, word by word, um, a Stephen King short story, or novella, I guess, because it's like 200 pages, called The Body. I don't know if you had a chance to read any of the novella, or read any of the background about it, or just versus just watch the film. I watched the film, and then I started reading some of the novella. There's some really interesting differences between the two that I'd love to get into, but... um, Starting off by your overall thoughts, did you get a chance to rewatch it recently? What did you think going into it?
1: I So I saw this movie a long time ago. I saw it when I was still coming of age. And I was floored by it. I thought it was a great movie. Man, I fired it up earlier this week, and I probably hadn't watched it in five or six years. In first go-around, I just didn't have—it didn't hit me like it used to. Maybe I've seen it too much. Maybe I've seen too many coming-of-age stories since then. You know, I, I mean, I was trying to think on this, Sam, and, like, when this movie came out in 1986, it's very nostalgic. It takes place Labor Day weekend in 1959. I don't know how many movies by the mid-'80s were, were doing that, right? Because if you, if you were 12 years old in 1959, you would have been, like, around 40 in 1986. So I feel like this was kind of the first of those, uh, you know, Sandlot-type nostalgia films to come out, and that's why, in large part... Um, I, I thought, you know, that this is a classic and it's a familiar favorite. But I'll say this, man. I rewatched it again this afternoon, and there's a lot going on underneath the surface of this movie that yeah. that really makes it what it is. And I'm, you know, when I watched it earlier this week, I don't know if I was just having a bad day. AC's been off in my apartment the past few days. It's 100 degrees out here. Maybe it was an off-viewing. Because I, I've kind of come back around to the conclusion that, like, man, this this movie does stand the test of time. It is an all time classic, and I'm excited to to break that down.
0: I actually echo exactly what you just said. I thought that there's some time during end of Act One, beginning of Act Two, where the movie kind of lulls, and you don't you feel like the movie had a really strong start, and then they don't really get off the ground from there, and you're there's a moment when I kind of looked around and was like, man, I'm not really that entertained by this movie. Like 45 minutes in, I just wasn't that entertained. I think the movie, the way it ends and kind of the the message that it has or kind of the lack thereof message or the, I almost want to say the melancholy message that it gives off, it kind of sticks with you. The story sticks with you a little bit more. It's not as... You're not glued to your your television the entire time, but when it's over, it kind of leaves a weird taste in your mouth, and you're just like, "Oh, that that's an interesting take on on life and childhood and all that stuff." And I started appreciating the movie a little bit more when I when I went back and I read the novella, uh, "The Body," and kind of viewing it from that lens and trying to read a little bit more about what Stephen King was was trying to present when he wrote this story. Sorry to interject,
1: but I would always heard the urban myth or whatever about Stephen King even before I saw this movie that Stephen King had had some sort of traumatic event I think one of the popular tales is he saw a kid hit got hit by a train uh when he was younger and I've heard but obviously um in doing some research about Stand By Me this is kind of loosely based on him it's also so I read something about to the effect of like, but you know, by this point when this movie came out in 1986, The Shining had already come out. Carrie had already come out. These were huge Stephen King adaptions, uh, box office smashes. And I heard that after the screening of this movie that Stephen King had to get up and like disappear for 15 minutes to kind of like, what do you, you know, get, gather, get, himself. gather himself. And that he, that Stephen King has apparently said before that at the time this came out, this was the favorite adaption of one of his works that had been produced over The Shining, over Carrie. Um, So I think that speaks volumes. And on top of that, you've got Rob Reiner directing at the time this came out. He had not done a lot.
0: He was at the peak of his powers. Well, what did he have? I mean, he had. No, 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 uh, not really.
1: He had, he had been a, you know, for about 10 years, he was on the TV show, All in the Family. um, And he had directed, this is Spinal Tap before this. So like he was starting, yeah. he had basically directed two comedies, but he was a brand new director. This is before Princess Bride. Okay. you right. Harry yeah, met Sally. Is, this is like, he the really Rob kicked it off right after this. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and I, Rob Reiner, I think I read somewhere that this was like his favorite, one of his works and come to find yeah. out, dude, you always see before movies, you know, castle rock entertainment. That's Rob Reiner's uh, production studio that is named after not only the movie uh, town that this takes place in, Castle Rock Oregon, but Castle Rock is apparently Maine, also the yeah, setting Maine. for Well, in the movie it's organ. It's fit but Oh in, really? Yes, it's organ okay. in the movie. But Castle Rock, Maine, is where a lot of Stephen King's stories take place. And I'm sure that's where the body takes place. But yeah, it was organ in the movie.
0: There like you say, there there are some differences. We'll we'll point out as we go along in the novel and in the and in the book. Uh I think it's really interesting, tidbit you pointed out where this is his the movie that he thought was the most faithful adaptation. I actually read something earlier where uh, I think 25 years later, at some 25 year anniversary party, he said the same thing. So it that has remained true, which I think is is really neat. Um, one thing that is interesting though, there is a major tone difference in in the film and in the novel. The novel and the way that it ends, and some of the the way that they structure some of the scenes and things, which again I'll get into. I think the novel is a little bit darker, which is not that big of a surprise. It is Stephen King. Sure. Um, He's kind of, you know, the king of horror. Whereas the film takes, it's, he didn't do the screenplay. It takes a, a little bit of liberty and makes things a little bit more uh, bittersweet, I think is the is a good way to describe this film. It's not as, it's, it doesn't have the horror scary element, but it has more of just a look at childhood that's a little bit subdued and, and makes you kind of ponder about some of the, the, the sadder truths of life, I guess the screenplay was done by Bruce Evans and Raymond Gilden famously this, this screenplay had when it was being, uh, touted. And when the movie was coming out and they were doing all the advertising for it, they did not attach Stephen King to it. This was not a, from the mind of Stephen King type thing that they, and that's part of the reason why they changed the name standby, by uh, the body and made it stand by me is because they didn't want you to see a children's film coming out and then be like, Oh, it's a horror movie. Right. Cause that would totally change the dynamic of sure. coming to see the movie. If you marketed this
1: as a Stephen King movie, people would be showing up expecting to see like the shining 2.0 and they would be heavily disappointed. Right. Now I will say that one thing that I like about this movie, um, and I've kind of always enjoyed movies. I hope this doesn't sound weird. Adult Theme movies that have child protagonists, and this this was kind of a common thing in the '80s. You had a lot of movies like The Goonies or ET or Christmas Story, um, and then this, and and you don't get that a ton anymore. I mean, we've had movies like Moonrise Kingdom or Boyhood, uh, but I always think that it's interesting when you kind of have that dynamic going on, where you've got like kid actors, but they're kind of handling yeah. you know more uh, adult centric themes. Um, obviously, an adult that's in theaters that's where all the nostalgia comes in you can relate to that point of life and especially when you're dealing with young boys like 12 13 year old boys i mean dude it's you know one of the things that kind of strikes home on this is just how profane these guys are when they're going on their journey yeah. it just totally reminds me of me and my friends growing up um it felt very real and that's a unique thing about this film that i really really enjoy
0: are you saying that you are on board with little kids doing shit movies and you're putting <laughs> your foot down there all jokes aside, I don't think this is anything similar to. Now this is pod racing. This is this is kind of its own thing, where it's not like this kid being thrust into a moment that is like uniquely adult, like fighting in a war. I think this is it's talking about themes that are adult related, but they're doing childlike. Things, right, exactly, right? They're still exactly. Acting like kids,
1: yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, it's not uh, definitely not a huge fan of the We Are Pod Racing, and you know, I'm trying to think of a good example to piggyback kind of off what you're saying. Yeah, it has nothing to do with, you know, like kids being violent, like a Lord of the Flies type scenario. It's more just like exploring themes of life with having, you know, these these people who are not fully developed in their own right kind of leading leading the story forward uh, and and figuring everything out for themselves.
0: This is listed as a coming-of-age story, and I think there's a lot of ways you can define a coming-of-age story, but I think one of the easiest ways to define it is you take somebody that has a child or an adolescent's age— and then you force them to reconcile with harsh truths or realities of the worlds that maybe adults know, but kids don't know yet, right? Whether that's loss or love or anything in between. And I think this movie and its characters and the characters' backgrounds, like that's what they're dealing with. They're dealing with all these problems from home. And then obviously the main focal point of the entire story is they're going to go see a dead body. And so they're, like, they're learning about loss of life, right? As 12-year-olds. So... Let's get into it. Um, yeah. There's a lot to go over. How do you want to do that? I so, know usually
1: Andy walks through the, the plot of the story. Do you want to kind of take the reins for him?
0: I'll take the reins. So it starts out with, it just shows a man sitting in his car reading a headline for a newspaper. Whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. About Not just who, any
1: man. Richard Dreyfuss. I'm getting there. I'm getting okay,
0: there. Okay. Hey, I'm getting there. A man is sitting in his car reading a headline in a newspaper about a man who's been stabbed to death in a fast food restaurant. Um, the man who is Richard Dreyfuss, which is pretty cool. I didn't actually realize Richard Dreyfuss, for whatever reason, I guess I was when I was watching it, just did not cross my mind. Richard Dreyfuss has been a ton of stuff, obviously, dog. Like Jaws. Uh, oh, yeah. Close Encounters of a Third Kind, American Graffiti. Yeah, Those were the he's big on ones. He hadn't done a
1: lot in 20 years. I remember he played Dick Cheney in W. Um, and that was kind of a good yeah. cast. I could totally see it. But, yeah, back in the... 70s and 80s richard dreyfuss who's a big player so
0: yeah and he was in the uh dirt sledding music video by the killers shouts out to richard Dreyfus, dude side um, note
1: i know we're probably going to get into this but this cast is just fully loaded
0: it is it's yeah. awesome i mean and they. before we move along i actually i did want to say one more thing about the casting and kind of some of the behind the scenes stuff i was reading that you know obviously there's four actors three of them went on to do a lot of stuff afterwards you had river phoenix you had a uh, cory feldman and then you had a uh, jerry uh, mcconnell jerry o'connell and i forget the other jerry sorry jerry o'connell and then, and then i forget will the Wheaton. other actor's name yeah will we and uh they casted these actors based on their real life personalities so they they put Corey feldman into the role of the like wild child right they put river phoenix into the role of the abrasive anti-hero that had this kind of like under simmering value jerry o'connell was like the funniest kid they had met so like yeah he's gonna be what is is the kid's name i I don't it's Vern. i don't have him pulled up Vern. Vern. yeah so i thought that was really interesting how they just how they they put them into the respective roles the way that they were going through uh obviously Corey feldman's parents were going through divorce at the time so like he was able to channel that during this performance um but getting back into the story so you got richard dreyfuss he's sitting in a car reading a headline of um a man who'd been stabbed to death in a fast food restaurant and then shortly after he sees these kids on these bikes go past his car and just kind of like enjoying summer and it kind of makes him think about his childhood and then it brings us to one of the most like interesting opening lines that i think i've ever seen where it's like i was he says something to the effect of i was 12 or 13 years old when i saw my first dead body
1: yeah which like hold the phone dude like your first dead body i mean they they never they never loop that one back around but like how many other dead bodies did this guy see did he go off and fight in Vietnam or something?
0: Yeah, I guess he could have because he was. This was 1959; he was 12, so he easily could have. And then it says it happened the summer of 1959. It was a long time ago, but only if you measure the, t- the term was of years, which I thought was. It's a cool line. It's poetic. It's one of the. It's one of the few times that this screenplay takes a liberty because that that's not exactly how he worded it in the novel, and I think that this line is a lot better. Um, and it's just a sick opening line. I love opening lines that are done really well. I think that anytime you can infuse like character as well as adding stakes, as well as getting the audience to like ask themselves questions. Right. Cause if, I mean, if you don't know anything about this film and then the first 30 seconds he's like, I was 12 when I saw my first body. You're like, hold the phone. Like you said, just, I have to know what happens next. So great, great opening line.
1: Yeah. Hook and sinker.
0: So then it introduces us to a few different characters. We've got, um, our main character Gordy, like you said, played by Will Wheaton. Um, he's sitting in a treehouse playing cards with, uh, Two of his best friends. We're about to meet a fourth. Uh, You got Chris Chambers played by River Phoenix and then Teddy Duchamp played by Corey Feldman. And they each kind of have a different character archetype. And I kind of went over that a second ago, but Gordy is kind of your character control. He kind of reminds me of Harry Potter and Harry Potter where he's like, most people can insert themselves into Gordy because he's just kind of, He's the quietest character. Again, he's kind of like Will in Stranger Things, where he's the quietest. He just kind of like blends into the background so that the other louder characters can bounce off each other. Hey, side um, note,
1: I gotta since you brought up Stranger Things. Apparently, when they cast the show Stranger Things for the auditions, they had them come in and read this script. So they were really reading, yeah they were reading lines from Stand By Me when they were auditioning for Stranger Things.
0: That sounds apt, I would say. Yeah, because they're both. Kind of coming of age tales with a with higher stakes. I think that's cool. Um so anyways, Corey Feldman's character, as I said, he's played by again kind of the the more like unhinged wild child of the group. Chris Chris is kinda of like the the Billy Badass. Teddy Duchamp's character is a little bit more of the unhinged character. And uh they all come from a kind of a, a sad background. Gordy has his brother died and they don't really I don't think in the movie they really tell you how he dies but in the novel yeah, they say they he do. died jeep, in a car accident
1: jeep, yeah they tell you in the movie it was a jeep
0: accident oh okay and then Chris Chambers character he comes from a, a bad family that's known for being dishonest and abusive so that kind of carries around with him through his reputation and then uh, Teddy comes from probably the most messed up background as his father was dealing with PTSD or some sort of you know shock disease after serving in World War II and famously put his son's head up against the stove. And that's why Teddy, throughout the entire film, you can see his ear is like burnt up and swollen because he has this huge burn on him. They're sitting up playing their cards. And then their, their fourth best friend, Vern, played by Jerry O'Connell, begs to come out in the treehouse. They're giving him a hard time and they're playing cards. And you can tell he's kind of like the butt of the joke character. He's a chubby guy. And they're not giving him the time of day. He's like, dude, I got something crazy to tell you. No, we don't care about it. Dude, it's going to be awesome. You're going to regret it and stuff. And it, and it, honestly, the pacing's a little off. They kind of take way too long for him to get to it. But eventually he's like, it says the iconic, probably the iconic line of the movie, which is, do you guys want to see a dead body?
1: Yeah, they stop all what they're doing. And I love that they're just up there in the tri- treehouse, like 12 years old. It's 1959. They're all ripping darts, playing cards. Chris Chambers is like knocking. I forget what he keeps saying. Corey Feldman's character is like, you don't have Not, pad yeah. hand or whatever. And they're just... The lingo in it is so great back and forth. Um, I do want to rewind because the second... Like I told you, the first time I watched it... And I, I'd seen the movie multiple times. I was kind of came away from it. And I was like, man, is this as good as I remembered? And after re-watching it and really paying closer attention... I started to notice some stuff that helped highlight the themes of the movie better. When they introduced River Phoenix's Wait, character... Chris Chambers, Richard Davis is obviously narrating this um, as the older Gordy,
0: like he know, yeah, as Gordy. Yeah, and he, he and he says happens.
1: something when he goes around the circle. You know, he talks about all these characters, and when he talks about Chris Chambers, he says he was from a bad family, and everyone expected him to turn out bad, including Chris. And that, and yeah. we'll, we'll get into that later. But like, you know, that sets up a good framework for the character. I think that people probably you know, could have related to this, especially at the time that it came out. There's that old stigma about the fathers of the greatest generation, these guys who had served in World War II um, or even before. And, you know, granted at this time, like if you were growing up in 1959, everyone's dad and granddad had served in a war. And a lot of these guys came back. And, of course, they were raised from an earlier, uh, much more hard, you know, farm-type generation. And so you always hear stories from the boomers about how their dads were really hard on them. And I think that's reflected in just about everyone in this circle. Gordy is kind of the outlier. You can tell he is from a privileged family, although they've kind of got some demons of their own that they're dealing with, with the death of their older son, who is clearly the favorite son. But if you go around the circle, um, especially with Chris Chambers, River Phoenix's character, and Teddy Duchamp, Corey Feldman's character, like their father's... um, I I don't know if they say that Chris Chambers' dad was a veteran. I just kind of assume it. You can tell that these guys are being raised by some very hard dudes. Um, they probably grew up in the '30s and fought in World War II, and maybe they're battling PTSD, maybe they're battling alcoholism, but uh, it's it's taken its effect on these these boys.
0: Yeah, a lot of a lot about how these characters are formed it, it speaks to nature versus nurture, and clearly, you are a product of the environment you grow up in, and especially with Chris's character in the line you just said, where it's like, you know. Everybody expected him to turn out badly, including Chris. I think of a lot of what leads the development of a young person is what the people around them expect of them. If they don't expect a lot out of them, or if, then eventually that becomes what the child eventually expects out of them. Um, you see it with a lot of different cultures of like different cultures around the world will force you to go to school and to study this amount of hours, and then they end up doing that and becoming successful versus not. And then I just think about my own experience of the first time I got an a on my report card or like all a's i was like oh cool i'm smart and then i just started studying harder right and so that taste of success that taste of people being like hey you can do this really means a lot to a child right where if people if nobody expects anything out of you or if everybody assumes you're a piece of crap then you're just kind of like okay that's my lot in life which is what makes naruto's character arc (laughs) well i'll I'll, get into that
1: I'll, i'll say this one thing that I kind of want to piggyback off is as they were going around in this opening scene and introducing all the characters, I was thinking about my own experiences too and how I knew a Teddy Duchamp. Like I remember going down to the pond in yeah. third grade and there was this kid named Mikey hanging out who, uh, shouts out Mikey, wherever you are, you're probably in jail right now. Totally was like a <laughs> bad kid. Like would fill up ink and water balloons and like throw them at stuff. And I just kind of remember, you know, he was my peer, but I, Came down to the pond, and I ran into him, and I was like, oh, man, this this could end bad. Like, this is a bad kid. And that was, you know, they, they throw Teddy out there. as like, he's that guy. Um, and then Chris yeah. Chambers' character is obviously, like I said, everyone in town expects him to turn out bad, including himself, because, you know, of the family that he's from. And you see Will, the protagonist, the main character of this group, Gordy. His character is obviously struggling with kind of being... Like the invisible child around his own household in the wake of his brother's death, and River Phoenix, Chris Chambers' character, kind of becomes like a parent to him along this journey, you yeah. know, in, in building him up and stuff. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll, Dude, we'll get into it. Gordy, I don't. Gordy's
0: father is horrible, and and I have to say, this guy who played Gordy's dad has—I looked it up. He's been in other stuff, and I just thought. Noticeably, he it was bad acting. Did you notice that too? I thought so too, dude. And, and the lighting on
1: him—it looked like a Lifetime movie every time they showed that guy, especially the dream sequence. Yeah. Like that guy, I thought the exact same thing. I was like, "Man, this acting is—you
0: know—the you know those movies where it's a, uh it will be like, hey, this is going to be like a Navy SEAL movie, but it's played by all Navy SEALs. And, <laughs> and you watch Act it, and valor. anytime they're sitting around, they're like, "Let's get down to business." And you're <laughs> like, okay, these guys clearly are not trained actors that's how it felt every time that, that whole
1: Gordy's flashback dad. with john cusack where they're sitting at the table and like the dialogue is just so corny and that's one of the things the first time i rewatched it earlier this week that i think struck me And i mean you can kind of cr- like look these are kids so maybe and it's 1959 so to some extent the lingo they're using and stuff is gonna be a little corny it's gonna be a little outdated but if i do have one knock on this movie i will say man there's some parts where the dialogue is really corny and when they're doing that whole dinner table scene with gordy's family um and he's like look ma or like dorothy you don't want to weigh the kid down with girls look how distracted he gets he needs to be focusing yeah. on football i was like bro he's just is... like the
0: most over the top like helicopter sports dad <laughs> like right PT. there's it no like... subtlety to it at
1: all exactly man it, it just yeah it was like a a total stereotype. He shouldn't
0: focus on his cancer. He should focus on the big game coming <laughs> up. Come on. Dude, exactly. And I will say this. there's. Uh, so I, I said earlier that a lot of what is done in the Stephen King uh, novella was taken as part of this script. All the flashback scenes were not. The flashback scenes were done by the screenwriter. So it's funny you point that out because I actually think there's a lot of lines of dialogue that are, that are pretty good, especially the back and forth of the kids when they're spilling their hearts out to each other right and kind of we're talking about with hell or high water where they're not going way out of their way to say exactly how they feel but they're kind of there there's some good subtlety to it i think those flashback scenes are a good example of some bad dialogue so it's funny how (laughs) kind of like game of thrones where when when they have the books to go off of it's great because they just use exactly what's there but when they don't have that and they take liberties Uh, right sometimes it kind of falls flat, dude
1: i don't know if we we were to rewrite this movie i don't know that you need a single one of those flashback scenes like i get it they were doing all the exposition but like other than just having john cusack in the movie you really don't need any of that stuff you don't get to see any of the other kids parents you really don't need to see gordy's to understand the character you know he has all the conversations with chris kind of confiding in him all these insecurities that he has and i think it all that could have spelled out exactly what you needed to without
0: the flashbacks but yeah we talked about the sandlot earlier this year and i think the sandlot has a lot of there's a lot of comparable things in the sandlot and to this because they're both largely based off of things that the the writer themselves experienced and they're both about childhood and all that and the father in that movie um,
1: i will say dude when we well, we'll obviously get into the part where they go to the junkyard and they run away from choppy but as i was watching that i was like dude i have a feeling that whoever the hell wrote the sandlot saw this movie in theaters and then left that night and started writing the sandlot i was like that that whole scene is kind of a microcosm of the Sandlot." i thought that too
0: (laughs) i thought that too except for the fact so a lot of what happened in the sandlot was actually based off of that guy's real life there was like a large dog that lived in a field next to their house they were scared of so yeah did 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 maybe they take a little bit of liberty of like the going over the fence stuff maybe that's based on this but i do think it's not a one-on-one uh correlation but i will say uh by the way the guy's name is is uh dennis leary the the dennis leary character in the sandlot had a lot more subtlety to it and i like you said i wish that they had just taken like a a 10 minute scene where they go to go ask Gordy's parents if he can go camping and then show like one or two interactions with this dad. And that's all you need. You don't need these corny flashbacks, like you said. So let me, let me get back into it. So we've got the, so anyways, Vern comes back to the treehouse. Hey, do you want to see a dead body? So they end up, Vern ends up explaining to them how they found this body. So he's looking for this jar of pennies. that's beneath his house. And he ends up, which again, kind of like a Stephen King esque element of, of he spent nine months looking for a jar of yeah, no, uh, no, that's... pennies under his house. That's great. His Uh, mom threw away the map.
1: He buried pennies for himself to find later in a jar underneath their house, and his mom like trashed his treasure map. And so he spent like all year (laughs) underneath his house, this little fat kid. Very Stephen King, very
0: larger in life. He hears his brother, uh, older brother Billy, and then his friend Charlie Hogan talking about how they found this body, this kid that had gone missing, Ray Brower, which at this point I wasn't fully paying attention. So when I rewatched this, I actually thought that they killed him. (laughs) <laughs> so I was like, Damn, this is really dark. That would that yeah. would have been
1: way more metal, way more Stephen King. Yeah,
0: and so and so it didn't make sense to me until literally late in the in the third act that I was like, oh okay, they were also just trying to find the body, but uh, because because he well, died from a they, railroad accident or whatever. They
1: were was, actually yeah. st- they they came across his older brother Vern's older brother and his buddy who were members of the Cobras gang actually saw the dead body after they had stolen a car, and that's why they didn't want to tell. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland's character or a note no, the authorities. Yep. They didn't even want to go back there. Uh, at least one of them didn't, um, because they were they had jacked
0: someone's car. Good call. Good call. Yeah, and, and and also good call out by you. Um so, anyways, they all decide they're gonna go out and they go ask their parents' permission. Hey, we're gonna go camping.
1: They they did the classic maneuver that we've all done growing up. And again, this is one of those things. They all tell their parents that they're staying over at a different kid's house. They're like, you tell them that you're gonna stay at Vern's house. He'll tell his parents he's staying at Chris's. And then we're going to tell him that we're going to go to the drag race on Sunday night or, or something like that. And that will buy us 48 hours to do this 20-mile journey where we need to get to go see uh, apparently where this dead body is. So, yes, Six. classic little kid maneuver.
0: So, anyways, they, they decide they're going to go out and find this body so that they can be recognized as heroes. You get all that background information about that Gordy provides about the other kids. You get some of it. And I think this is one of the cool things about how they structured this screenplay is you don't know everybody's story you don't really know chris's whole story yet you certainly don't know the the depths of depravity of of teddy's story at that point you do know that he gets burned but you don't know how he feels about his father yet um i like how that's all revealed but anyways they they get started on this journey but before they do two cool things happen one gordy and chris meet in town and chris the the billy badass that he is shows Gordy he's like hey look what I got and he pulls out a blicky he pulls out he pulls out a handgun and he's like hey look what I got and like two 12 year old kids they're super stoked Chris has stolen it from his his father I believe yeah and he uh, stole that
1: and some Winston cigarettes for after supper on their journey because as Chris says so a cigarette's always best after supper
0: and uh, I I love this decision from it just it, it goes back to the Alfred Hitchcock gun under the t- or bomb under the table thing right you know that you get started on this act too they're about to start off on their journey it's such a great ring to throw in that's like hey these dumb 12 year old kids have a loaded gun with them Yeah, what Colt are they going to do it, Dude, and, and it. that's what makes me
1: think too that uh, maybe Chris's dad did serve in the military because it's a Colt 45 which I believe would have been like the army issued sidearm during World War 2 uh, I, I did want to mention too that they have right before that scene they have their first run in with Ace, Kiefer Sutherland and the Cobras and I gotta point out, dude, that one of those characters... So with the guy that they run into, you know, they steal um, Gordy's hat that his brother had yeah. given him, his Yankees hat. And the other guy is there, so you got Kiefer Sutherland, he's the ringleader of the Cobras. And he's with this other character named Eyeball, who's actually supposed to be Chris Chambers' older brother. Dude, between Vern's older brother and Chris's older brother, these are like the shittiest fucking older brothers in the history oh, yeah. of family. Like, three of the four boys their older brothers run around in this this gang called the Cobras that I I guess these are like teenagers. Um, and, dude, they're all huge pieces of shit. Like, n- none of them. They have multiple chances where their little brothers are literally getting, like, bullied by their friends. And none of these guys ever stand up. They just think it's great. They think it's hilarious. I thought that was odd. I was like, man, these guys are all really, like, total yeah, sacks of shit. Yeah, I think it would have
0: been... I, I understand there are some older brother younger brother relationships where they're like bully them a little bit maybe like i'm just lucky but like out in public if you see your brother getting picked on you take up for them a- anybody that i know that's how they would tr- be with their brothers you pick on them at home but not in public like in public you take up yeah for them. So, dude if you
1: see Kiefer sutherland about to put a lit cigarette into your little brother's eyeball or like slit yeah. his
0: throat from ear to ear like bro say something yeah, it, it, that's pretty weird. So yeah, just easy creative decision to not make him their brothers. But anyways, so they go up on their journey, um, realize that they they didn't bring any food, so they get some money. They're gonna buy something along the way. It's um, a great touch this
1: scene for twelve year old boys for them to like start this whole two day journey, like run away from home, and is and <laughs> yeah, like within no two hours they're like, oh shit, we gotta eat. <laughs> they they we, literally we should
0: just get some berries.
1: Yeah, they didn't bring any food, dude. And they yeah, that's that seems so great. They decide to go to the gas station get some food.
0: So there's a little scene before that where a train's coming and it, I think this is a great scene for a few reasons. Um, one, it introduces the element that they're going to pass these tracks and you you know that there's a dead body that was killed by the train. They're going to be walking on the train. Teddy almost dies on the train on this scene. Um, so it kind of introduces the element of like the danger of the, of the journey. Um, Teddy imitates like shooting an automatic rifle at the train, acting like he's going to be like his father in Normandy, which kind of, Again, alludes to his crazy father. right He gets pulled off at the last second. Um, again, just kind of showing how crazy Teddy really is. Um, so they get the junkyard. And the junkyard is kind of a scene that I'm a little bit weary of. I don't really understand in the movie why this scene happened, other than the fact that it, at the end of the scene, it does provide a little bit of character context. But in the novel, they kind of say that they're going to stop for some water, but I don't think that really happens. In the no, movie. they do. They, um, they use
1: a little water spout that's at the junkyard. Yeah. Okay. And I kind of, I was wondering okay. about that too. And I, I was at first time I watched it, I was like, well, I guess it makes sense that like, these are just kids and they would love to hang out in the junkyard, but apparently they, they stopped there for water.
0: Yeah. And this is one of two scenes in the movie that happened during act two that I think provide a little bit of fun. I think there's something to the funding. Like, there's a few different ways you can do your act structuring. There's you know the, the the whole like fun and games portion of particularly a coming of age story. Um I always bring up Harry Potter because it's such a common one, but like Harry Potter has the very common fun and games where it's like him going to classes and learning about different uh potions or different like lore, finding like the Marauders map or whatever, right? A very common example of like a fun and games in the middle of a of a of a story. But I think this fun and game stuff is a little bit out of place because Dude, once you've introduced the fact that there's a loaded gun with them and they're gonna go see a dead body and all this stuff, I kind of want you to get further into it. And this, it kind of kills the the tone or not the tone, but the uh, the pacing a little bit. This scene's not as bad because you are so early on. There's a scene down the road I want to talk about, but this whole scene kind of lingers a little bit too long. Um, I agree. really the, the the big the big things that happen here are uh, again it does add a little bit of nostalgia because they flip the coins for. For the uh, to see who who's the odd man out, and uh, Vern gives a story about the guy who you know. Yeah, no, he goes. Honors, it's a guucher. Yeah, Guchar, if you flip yeah.
1: if you flip all coins and they're all tails, it's a goocher and if they're all heads, it's a moon, and you do not want a goocher That's like a really bad omen. And dude, I gotta yeah. just like, there's one aspect about this film that I love um, that feels very real to me is all these little games or things yeah. that these kids do like. You know, when, when Chris yanks Teddy off the train tracks and, to save him, and they're all pissed at each other, and their way of settling it is like, give me skin, dude. And it's like a big deal. He doesn't want to give him skin. He's like, no, give me skin. Or when he's walking yeah. with Gordy, and like he's tell, he's making him swear something. He's like, dude, swear on your mother's life, you know, or whatever. And then, and then the one-up from that is like, no, pinky swear, dude. Yeah. And he does the pinky swear, or the two for flinching, like, you hit your all that stuff, and on top of that, like the goocher, I was just like, man, this is that is very accurate for little boys, you know, run, roaming around. Um.
0: Yeah, what what they consider to be high stakes, the codes adult that they live by. Yes, yeah, the codes they live by. It's again like the Sandlot, the famous example where they're like insulting each other, and then the final insult is you throw like a girl, <laughs> and <then> it's like, <laughs> oh shit, he said that. Um, so yeah same same but different so anyways gordy's like okay i'm gonna go get food he goes to the gas station and there's a a scene where he talks to his clerk and i gotta say this clerk has like zero bedside manner and his clerk's just like hey you're the kid whose brother died right He's yeah like, yeah man your brother was a great athlete too bad he died what do you do by the way you play oh, you football? don't do anything Man, that's sad yeah <laughs> just like this guy is so mean uh just unintentionally mean has zero like this kid is just like staring off to space about to cry he's like oh that sucks maybe you'll learn how to play like your your brother too <laughs> bad <laughs> he, he died anyways here's your burger it'll be a dollar 50 so again it's it's heavy-handed but it does a good job of just kind of like drilling in that if the if the flashbacks with his father don't do it like you should see the other people kind of view him in that light as well right right uh, it's like not being enough um he gets back to the junkyard uh he sees his buddies are leaving. And then in the background, you can see the, the guy who runs the junkyard Milo uh, Milo is watching him. And he starts chasing after him. And then his dog, uh, chopper is yeah. famous. Kind of, kind of like, again, kind of like the Sandlot. You've got this do- famous dog. He'll he sick. Him, chases Gordy across the yard. Gordy barely gets over in time before chopper gets to the fence. And then you have that interaction with the guy who runs the, the Milo, the guy who runs the, the junkyard, as he's kind of in, he he realizes who these kids are and he particularly spots based on his ear Teddy and he's like oh i know you Teddy Duchamp you're that you know Duchamp kid your dad is is up in the loon house he's, he's up in loon Togus veteran. in the looney bin yeah and uh again another adult that just is such an asshole to this these guys kids. a total prick and, dude yeah i mean in a way, I'm kind of like, okay, this guy. You know, they trespass, they picked on your dog, they're yelling at you, like, kiss my. Yeah, they are talking. They are so talking
1: th- shit to him, but still. Yeah,
0: so he just he basically just one ups it. It is like, but he takes it way too far, obviously, and he's an adult, so like, I don't know, whatever. But this is a great scene because it just it. We don't know exactly the depths at which any of these characters are truly affected by their broken homes, and I feel like this is the first scene where you realize just how deprived these kids are and how much their home lives affect them um and kind of in that
1: moment you you figure out what this guy's all about like this is an angry kid he's had a tough childhood his dad's in an insane asylum um and he loves his dad uh it's a it's a pretty it's the first kind of emotional note i think that the movie hits um I gotta laugh about the dog chopper too, dude. Like this is just like the Sandlot. I'd love One of the line. Adorable dog. Yeah, like Gordy says some line. He gives. This was my first lesson growing up in the difference between fact or fiction. And <laughs> I was sitting there laughing again, relating it to personal experiences about the the house in our neighborhood that we referred to as the teenagers. You know, there were all oh these God, legends teenagers. growing up. Yeah. yeah. So,
0: dude, can we talk about the teenager first? We second? can talk about like, the teenagers. I don't medicines. know if
1: I ever saw them. Um, but there was a house, infamously, in our neighborhood growing up that all the kids knew about, and there were all these stories, man, it was like, I know that one time they threw water balloons full of piss onto so-and-so's mom, apparently they shot Miss Fowler. Dude, they had the airsoft
0: guns on death? Yeah. They were all about shooting people with airsoft guns. Their Rottweiler
1: apparently got out one day and, like, raised hell, and so if you were ding-dong ditching houses in our neighborhood growing up, there was one house with, like, a black cloud over it that we just referred to as the teenagers, and- you know what? Whether that was fact or fiction is neither here nor there. It's kind of the same thing with with this dog. You know, he when when Gordy's running away, you hear Milo yell Chopper, or "Chopper sick him and all Gordy hears is "Chopper Sick Balls," and he's running for his life. And right as soon as he scales the fence, <laughs> he turns around, dude. It's like a miniature yellow lab. It's like the sweetest, yeah, it's like dog. adorable lab. Right, right. But it's just, you know, like everything else, uh, kind of growing up, you build these myths around the school halls growing up um, that are just larger than life. Most of the time, they're not true. And that's another element of the film that I kind of enjoyed as far as, yeah. you know, memory lane is concerned.
0: So then we come to what is probably my single favorite scene of the whole movie—the is the train track scene. Well, I guess they're all train tracks, but the, the, particularly <laughs> the bridge. The bridge scene. Um, yes, this is such a cool scene. The way that they direct it, and I think the time they use to set it up. So they approach this. They're they're obviously walking along the train tracks to, because they know that the body is on the train tracks because it got hit by a train, right? And they approach this bridge. It goes over this ravine, basically, a rushing river. The bridge goes about 100 feet above the river, and it's probably from, like, from crossing the river from point A to point B, it's probably maybe 250 feet. It's not, it's it's really, like, maybe the length of a football field, so maybe, like, 300 feet, and they're sitting there going, okay, we can cross this. We have to walk, you know, they have to walk on these planks that are about, a foot and a half apart so there's the element of a if i misstep i could fall through the gap and you know and possibly die and then there's also the element of which i didn't think about at the time until they brought it up <laughs> when does the next train come and then i was like oh that is a big deal because if the train comes you have nowhere to go you have to you have to run back to the either side you can't just jump off the edge. It's too high right you die um and so they they're like okay do we walk five miles around to the bridge we know exists and and not deal with this at all and basically add another day there and back. Or do we just walk across the bridge? It's only going to take us five minutes, but it's scary. And so they walk across the bridge, which is probably the right thing to do. But and then, of course, as you can expect, there's uh, the, the, the train comes. And I again, I think the way they set up the scene where they're all sitting there debating it and they show all the different shots and angles of the bridge because when, when they first approach it, I'm like, oh, it's a no-brainer. Go across the bridge. Right, But the right. more they show angles and they debate it, you're like, oh, this is actually pretty dangerous. Uh, I love
1: the line that Corey Feldman delivers right, right before they, they're debating whether they should walk five miles or whatever. And Corey Feldman is kind of the only one who's like, I don't give a shit. I'm going to cross. And, and he yeah. says something. He's like, you girls go ahead and go around. I'm going to cross this bridge, and I'll be sitting there with my own thoughts. And Gordy's like do you use your right or your left hand for that? And he kind of looks at him and he goes, <laughs> you wish. Which there's a lot of shitty comebacks between these kids, but I kind of love it. It's very real. Um, and yeah. dude, the tension building in this scene is great. Gordy keeps kneeling down as they're crossing, like before they see anything. He's He will kneel down and he'll kind of feel the uh, train track, you know, the, the, the uh, metal railing to see if he feels any vibration. And he does this like two or three times as they're kind of going across and it's not till they're about halfway across that he kneels down and he touches it and, it, and he and he feels something and he looks back and they see black smoke pummeling over the trees like hmm. approaching quickly and in the audience you're just you're kind of sitting there like oh shit because they're like halfway across yeah. this thing dude yeah they're in the worst And burns spot. crawling like he's not he's so scared he drops his comb Mary he brings the yeah. comb along, and he's like, I, I need this in case we get on TV after we find the body. <laughs> Corey Feldman's like, dude, you don't even have hair. Uh, he drops his comb, <laughs> and he's all upset, and he's kind of crawling. Well, here comes the fucking train, dude. And all hell breaks loose.
0: Yeah, it's it's great. And they obviously, uh, Teddy and Chris get across okay, but Gordy is, is behind the crawling Vern, and Vern eventually gets to his feet, and they're running and running. And they... Dude, they spent to their credit. You know, they they could have made this a little. They could have made this too dramatic. They also could have made this only like ten seconds. I think they made this a perfect amount of screen time. It's like, it's like forty seconds of them running for their lives and them just being cheered on, and the train's getting closer and closer, and eventually they get to dry land with just enough time to jump over the edge and you know, kind of fall down a hill as the train gets to them, and. Uh, Yeah, they they survive, obviously.
1: So I read an interesting thing about how they filmed that scene, because obviously this is like pre-CGI, really. Um, So I'm guessing that, you know, the train that they used is still in service. Like, they used a real train to film this. Apparently they, um, for the wide shots where these people are actually running away from the train, they used these stunt doubles that were like women. And they just gave them short haircuts to kind of like look like little boys. And so there were actually people like hauling ass across that bridge running away from the train and i believe that they boarded up the spacing in the track so that those people could actually just sprint and get away from it and then with the ford shots obviously where it shows the boys running in the trains in the background they did some sort of camera technique on the dolly to make the train appear a lot closer than it was i did hear that rob reiner gave a speech to the actors to like the boys that was basically like hey dude my guys like the the cam, the camera guys are so sick of sitting on this dolly um, and th- and they're afraid of it too I think it was probably a pretty scary scene to film anytime you get a live locomotive involved and like you're running away a bridge you're running across a bridge there's no escape like that was probably a high stakes stunt to uh, to produce God. I heard that Rob Reiner told the kids something because they did not like they were running and they weren't really selling the delivery of it they didn't look scared or maybe they weren't running quick enough. And he's like, hey, my camera guys are spooked over here on this dolly and y'all need to make it look like real or else you don't need to worry about the train. Like I'm going to fucking kill you. And apparently the kids were like, oh, shit, because Rob Reiner's kind of a big (laughs) guy. They were like, "Uh, "Okay," And then they they sold it, obviously, with their their facial expressions. But yeah, that is probably the most uh, single most famous scene from Stand By Me. The tension in it is just phenomenal. I totally agree with you that it's like not overdone. It's not overdone, underdone. It is a well-cooked, dramatic and very tense scene. That railroad yeah. scene.
0: Most of the times in scenes like this, I I weigh it against the the probability that somebody will actually die. And I never thought one of them is going to die during this scene. But even with that being said, I just think it's it's shot so well, it's timed out so well, it's acted well. It just kind of they set up the stakes well enough to where I didn't even care, right? It just it just worked. So then anyways, they we, we have a few different reprises from kind of the central storyline. We've got these we have a few different story uh, conversations that happen between our characters as they're continuing down the tracks particularly with Gordy he's kind of confiding to Chris that he doesn't want to write anymore and as you said earlier this is kind of when Chris continues to take that fatherly role and is like dude you know you're a great writer you need to continue doing it if your parents aren't going to tell you as much I'm going to be your dad like you need to do this you have a gift from God like, he puts yeah. his stories into your head. It reminded head, me like, of uh,
1: this. Ben Affleck in um Goodwill Hunting. Like, he was kind of taking that yeah. kind of thing. It was like, dude, you've been handed a golden ticket, and, like, you know, you can say that you don't want to be a writer, but I don't believe that. That's your dad talking, and, like, you need to use this talent. Spot on.
0: As a writer, it, I've thought about several stories that I could write about writers. It, it's an easy topic to, to – because you understand it. You, are, you can relate to it about – Oh, why well, don't I write a story about a writer who's struggling or a writer that makes it. And I've noticed there's a lot of Hollywood movies about people that are trying to make movies. Right. Right. And so, so when I read this, I, I took this as like Stephen King is inserting himself into the story being like, I'm a writer, but I don't know if I should be doing this. Cause it's kind of, it's not as desired as other things. Like I'm kind of on an Island here. Like, what am I doing? And anyways, they, they set up camp at night and this, this leads us to what I think is probably, it's one of the most fun scenes of the movie, but kind of what I said about the ju- the uh, junkyard scene, this is, from a pacing perspective and a structure perspective, this is the most shoehorned scene in the movie, is... Lardass. When, when, Lardass. When Dude, Gordy I, tells this story about Lardass.
1: Yeah, I, I hate the Lardass scene. I just gotta say it. I... I... Yeah. I get it. It's kind of gimmicky. It does play on, like, some of the ghost story or, like, urban legend type things you might tell around a campfire yeah. with your buds. But, dude, like, it's, it's so too gimmicky. Yep. Like, no 12-year-old so would think that that's a funny or cool story. And, like, it serves no other purpose in the plot other than just kind of being like, these are kids. Brevity. Um, it's brevity. And it's gross. Like, yeah, I do not... I think the Larda... And I'm sure there's people listening to this that think that that scene's hilarious. Um... I mean, I guess I, maybe I've seen this movie a thousand times and like, it just doesn't have any more weight for me. First viewing of the movie, you might see that and kind of be like interested in it because you, you don't know what's going to happen as he's telling the story. Um, but dude, I'm kind of with Corey Feldman. I'm like, this story sucks, bro. Like for real, you call yourself a writer, Gordy. And like, you're going to tell this lame ass tale. Uh, the lard ass scene does nothing for me.
0: I think it's an okay story. And I think it, I disagree a little bit. I think that Twelve-year-olds could find it funny if it was, you know, with some slightly different details and all that. But I think that this this scene is fine if they have it directly after, say, the scene where they leave the uh, the junkyard because you've already you've had a really emotional scene of you know, Corey Feldman. Or I keep saying Corey Feldman. Uh, uh, help me out here. Teddy's breakdown about his father. So you kind of need some lightening of the mood. Because, again, this story is is not trying to be like the Stephen King novella. It's trying to have a little bit more lightheartedness, obviously. This is very much an act two, like middle of act two thing to have in there as a true fun and games moment, this story. Yeah. There's no addition to to the story other than just to provide a lighthearted nature of like, oh, these are kids. And I think you need to have that much earlier. As I said, I think that in between the junkyard scene and the train scene, I think this would be fine. Like they're all four walking down the tracks and he says the story. That's fine. Do you want to
1: tell for anyone that's listening, like what the Lardass story is? Is that worth even going over?
0: Yeah, I'll go over it real quick. So basically it uh, tells the story of this character named Lardass Hogan, who um, is, they say he's massive. He's their age, but he's 180 pounds. And then when it shows the guy, he's, Probably he's like 15 years old and he's like 250 pounds but anyways he is sick and tired of being made of his of his weight so he takes revenge on the town you don't really know he's taking revenge on the town you just know that he's entering this pie eating contest so he's he enters this county fair pie eating contest they're in these tents and kind of like any any scene that shows like a nightmare it's almost like everybody's a little bit too posh everybody has too much makeup on loud clothes everything is like light and airy almost like a utopian story it feels very like stepford wives a little bit so you kind of know that it's like nightmarish in nature a little bit um anyways he enters this pie eating contest and there's this you know that they, they introduce all these front runners that are supposed to beat him but anyways uh Lardass hogan starts winning starts eating the pies faster than everybody else but then as gordy says he, his goal wasn't to win it was to get revenge and it shows before he enters he drinks all this uh I think it was like industrial oil of some sort, like what you use in a car. It is kind of funny how
1: everyone there is just such a dick to him. They're like the mayor of the town, and everyone's like, what's up, lardass? I mean, Kevin, and even the Elk Club, like the old men are like, ba-boom, 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 when he's walking on the stage. Like, that is kind of funny.
0: But anyways, so this scene takes, it's, again, so it culminates with, uh, Lardass sets himself up so that he can vomit. He vomits on the person next to him who then causes another vomit, who then causes another vomit. And then everybody in the whole place is vomiting on each other, which again, isn't a story that 12 year olds could tell each other as like a funny little side, like urban legend. Yes. Did you need to tell it with like 25 minutes left in the film when you're about to have like the climax of the film? Probably not like it. Again, I understand you don't want it to be too heavy, but you know, if I was structuring this, this is the like night before the battle. So to speak, from like a, a character development standpoint, because um, they're they're going to find the body the next day. They're going to, you know, they're going to face their demons and the in the older bullies the next day. This needs to be the scene where they're like airing out their demons. It doesn't need to be, which they do a little bit, but they just spend way too much time on this story. So I'll yeah, tell you what I did like happens.
1: compared compared to the Lardass story is the idea or like the scene where they're sitting around the campfire, and this felt totally real to me. And they're going around, and they're just throwing out all the hypotheticals. He's like, uh, who – like, they're talking about how, like, the $64,000 question has to be rigged. And they're like, okay, you've got Pluto's a dog, Mickey the mouse. Like, what's Goofy? And they're going around, and I I forget kind of the other ones that they throw out. But those are very real, uh, you know – conversations like they're just talking about stupid shit that only 10 yeah. year old boys would find interesting but they're contemplating it with or, like
0: or all, all the wealth of if the world if we're being yeah. honest if we're being honest like all boys like you know show me any bachelor party that doesn't have conversations that eventually dwindle down to that shit like that
1: i also like, love when uh verne and teddy are talking is and he's goofy like, a dog yeah yeah i like how Vern and teddy are like who would win in a fight? Mighty Mouse or Superman? And Teddy's like, that's stupid. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman's a real guy. <laughs> I thought that, that was great. Yeah, a uh, real guy. Just yeah. the way that they they perceive the world.
0: 100%. And that, and that still happens, like, comic book nerds being like, well, in this universe, like, this person can do this. It's like, dude, it's all fictional. Yeah. So, it's not only children. Uh, So, anyways, in this scene, there is a really cool moment where Chris basically admits to Gordy, that he did steal the, the the milk money that was referred to earlier in the film when Gordy's dad so poorly acted out. They well, did he steal the the milk money? Well, then he's a thief in my book. Well, anyways, Chris, Chris, yeah, it's horrible. But Chris did admit to stealing the the uh, the milk money, but he still returned it. He says and he returned it to the teacher, who then went and showed up the next day in a new skirt that he knows he she couldn't afford. Basically implying that you know. He returned the money. Nobody would believe him if he did anyways. The teacher ended up buying something with it most likely. And he just kinda he kinda ate it. He took the L as they would say. So it's a really good yeah, it's it's my lot in life.
1: It's a good yeah, it's a good insight into Chris Chambers, into River Phoenix's character. This idea that this kid, again, Chris feels so defeated that, you know, he he didn't even take up for himself. He's never told anyone. He didn't go to the principal or anything and be like Hey, I returned this money to Miss So and so like he just takes the L like you're saying he totally eats it and it's been weighing on him. I think that's the best acted scene in the entire movie is is River Phoenix's breakdown by the campfire when he starts crying. Yeah. And really that's that's uh that gives the movie some extra weight for sure.
0: Yeah. And and it kind of speaks to what one of the themes of this movie I think is in a movie that is has some very melancholy and hard-to-find themes, because a lot of times themes are very, like, happy. Like, oh, look at... This is how you should lead your life. But this... I think this movie, the theme is a little bit darker, and I think one of them is adults can let children down, right? It's not always about children finding out their way. Sometimes it's, you know, adults lead their children into shitty outcomes, and children suffer from it. And I think that's, that's a huge... Theme of this movie, and I think that's an even bigger theme in the in the novella, which we'll get to in a second as to why I sure. think that. Um, so, anyways, uh, the next morning, it, there's there's a scene that shows um, Ace again, played by Keith or Sutherland. We go back to the to the older kids. There's a few scenes of the older kids that again aren't in the novella, but they're in this movie, which I think is a good decision of showing just the mischief. It shows them uh, just like smoking and hitting mailboxes and things like that. Mailbox baseball, just, dude. Yeah, which dude, as far as like pastimes that I've never been involved in, nor will I ever be involved in, that look kinda funny.
1: <laughs> we had brick mailboxes in our neighborhood growing up. Like you couldn't even do they had wooden and tin mailboxes. But dude, can we talk about the Cobras? Like, who the fuck are these guys? I've gotta wonder if there were really these grease lightning, like cheesy as shit teenagers running around in the nineteen fifties, because like not only are these dudes just like not hanging out with any girls and they're kinda lame. They're huge bullies. Again, like three of the four main characters, older brothers, are part of this gang called the Cobras. Um, and they're all pieces of shit. I, I just that these guys are so they're so corny and they're so evil. It's almost like mm-hmm. I did not grow up in that era, but I almost like don't believe it. I'm like, what's going on here? Like these dudes are stealing cars, they're threatening to kill
0: children. They're a little, they're a little campy, right? You never believe that Keith or Sutherland is actually going to stab Chris in the last, the scene that we'll eventually get to here in about ten minutes, like, which is the the scene of just like pulling out the knife and like act like he's gonna stab the kids. In a way, I think they, I think there's two failures. You can either look at it from one of two ways. You either need to make Ace more of an asshole and show him doing something truly heinous to where you think he's capable of that. And that the movie is capable of showing a kid getting stabbed, which is really they're not going to be able to do that in this the tone of this movie. Right. Like you, you never believe for a second that a kid is going to get stabbed in front of us. Right. But I think more importantly, the other end of that is you need to show. And, and I'm, I'm I'm getting a little bit ahead, but you never even you never need to threaten the stabbing. It needs to just be like he's going to beat him up. Yeah, I I agree.
1: We can obviously get to that at the final scene, but I will say this, as far as setting up expectations, I mean, you do have the near-death experience earlier on the train track for the kids. I know you said you watched it and you didn't believe for one second one of these kids are going to die, but to kind of play devil's advocate, like, they do kind of set up the sense of danger uh, with that scene, like anything could happen, and at the same time, they do show that Keeper Sutherland's character, Ace, is batshit crazy. I mean... He threatens his friends. He goes, if one of you guys had two grand, I'd kill you both. And then, yeah. remember when he plays chicken with the log truck? Like, that scene kind of shows yeah. up that, like, hey, dude, this this dude really may go the extra mile. They're, they basically race uh, their buddies, you know, on a two-lane road. Ace, Kiefer Sutherland's character, cuts around him. He's driving on the opposite lane coming towards incoming traffic there's a giant log truck and basically he doesn't back down he keeps going straight forward this yeah. log truck so he can win the race And that log truck ends up spinning off on the side of the road and all of his friends are absolutely shaken to their core and you know ace just sits there and sips his beer with his toothpick in his mouth and is like i won guess i won so i, th- yeah. I feel like they do kind of set up him to be a crazy ass but like do I really believe that this guy is
0: that crazy, like murderer level crazy? I don't know. I don't know if I ever bought into I'll, that. I'll concede that. I'll concede the other things I think can be can be taken as just teenagers being teenagers. But the but the scene where he plays chicken with a log truck, I, I I'll say that is there. That is the best scene that leads the audience to believe that he might do something crazy. Um, sure. So, anyways, we see these scenes with Ace. It shows Ace and the gang basically decide they're going to go look for the body now. So it leads the audience to be like, okay, we now have both groups going towards the body. So it yep. goes back to Gordy and his gang, and they're going to take a shortcut through the woods that um, Vern does not want to take, but they end up going through it anyways. They end up in a swamp with leeches, and it's kind of, again, kind of a comedy scene. It doesn't really lead to anything other than the fact that Gordy has a leech land in his crotch and that he has to pull it out, and he faints. So again, kind of again, kind of a scene that I think needs to happen before the, like, the night before scene with Chris pouring his heart out. It's a funny scene. Like, that scene can be in the movie, but I just think it needs to be happen, it needs to happen earlier.
1: Well, um, and is it worth having the debate on an adventure story like this when you're going from point A to point B, hero's journey type story, like, when we talk about scenes like Lardass or the leeches, or something that kind of seems yeah. irrelevant as far as driving the plot forward, I feel like in the formula... Of adventure stories, you in, you inevitably have these side quests, um, and they do not always push the plot forward like a regular drama would. And, I, and maybe that's just kind of baked into the equation, right? Like you've got to show a couple different side quests or, or, or little parts of this adventure that that don't necessarily have to do with finding Ray Brower. So yeah. I can li- I can live with it. But it is it it serves no purpose other than like they did something kind of crazy,
0: yeah, and it, i my my rebuttal to that is I think I think you're right, they absolutely can and should have those scenes, uh, and that's kind of what I was saying is I think they just need to move them because w- when you're having such a clear climax as finding the body and the bullies ending up at the same spot and the gun scene and all that, that is a clear climax with emotional stakes with character growth stakes and all that stuff. And I think setting that up with a a traditional, you know, quote-unquote, darkest hour moment. You want to see your heroes in their darkest hour. Their darkest hour is not leeches getting stuck on their dick. Their darkest hour is they're around a campfire realizing that, you know, nobody will ever think of them anything as, as other than a, uh, as a, as a thief. Or my father will never love me as much as he loved my brother. Those are the kind of things right, that right. I want to see five minutes before the penultimate scene of the film not you know guys knocking over mailboxes leeches getting stuck on their crotch like that it took away from the tone of what you want for that final scene it also just it destroyed the pacing because what ended up happening is when they stumbled upon the body it just kind of happens suddenly you're like oh the body, as opposed to like they're in their darkest hour and then they're like moping and then it's like oh there it is what we've been looking for it's kind of what you're looking it's kind of what you want in that scene so um yeah it's just one guy's opinion. We're obviously talking about a Stephen King work here, but uh <laughs> you know, like as, as, as all authors, you know, we we do things a little bit differently and there's a lot of things in in the novella in particular that I that I didn't enjoy. Um one thing about that is in this scene where they they stumble so they stumble upon the body is the very next scene and in the novel there's a thunderstorm and the thunderstorm they're like terrified of their safety during the thunderstorm. It's a bad thunderstorm and Then they stumble upon the body and the whole interaction with the bullies that happened immediately after they discover Ray Brower's body happens during a hard thunderstorm, which I think is so it's so unnecessary. In the the novel or in the movie? Yeah, in in, in the novel. And it's so unnecessary because it's again, it's kind of what we talked about with Stephen King is it just has to take the ultimate step forward of like the horror scary element is dude, I kind of like that it's a sunny day. In the, like how they do it, how they do it in the movie. It's a sunny day, and they find the the body, and it's not as glorious as they think it's going to be. Right? There's there's something to the juxtaposition of it's a beautiful day outside. They find what they want, and they they uncover the body. They they move remove the branches, and they just stare at it. And they're like, he's not sick, he's not asleep, he's just dead. And they just stare at it. And they're you know they're so excited to find it, and they're just Moment of sobriety where there's like right, and I don't and I don't think you get that if it's like storming outside. That just again, that just takes away from the moment.
1: I did not read the novella. I could, I think there could be an argument made about reading something a copy and print versus watching a movie and how like that sort of Shakespearean element of having the thunderstorm go on could add to like if if you were reading this to to sort of heighten the stakes. But I love the juxtaposition in the film. Especially, you know, it's bright outside, they find the body, and it is just not, it's how you laid it out, it's like they're excited the whole time to go see this. This is what the whole journey's been about, is finding Ray Brower's body, and when they do move the leaves, and they see this dead kid who's just sitting there all mangled, um, it's sobering, it's haunting, it definitely takes a toll on Gordy, uh, whose older brother died in a jeep accident. I mean, this is really where he kind of breaks down um in front of chris and just tells him like you know like i all all of his worst fears like his dad doesn't love him this is the scene where gordy basically breaks down um in front of chris after they discover the dead body and it's not long after that ace and his gang show up and things get yeah yeah and
0: and dude the the scene where chris breaks down or sorry where gordy breaks down is it's kind of everything you want it to be. Um, I love that he just comes out and says his fear. I love that at this moment he finally says audibly what the audience is like is kind of their worst nightmare. Is this dad loves you know the dead son more than him, and it hits you in a in a spot, man, where like even if you haven't gone through that, you you know what this person's going through, and so yet Ace comes through with his gang. There's this back and forth of. who found the body first versus who arrived first today versus you know they had a car we walked here all this stuff and ace ends all of it and pulls out a knife and is like all right step away from the body we're gonna take this you know we're gonna get the award and Vern runs off first his ass is out of there
1: and then and then and then teddy's gonna stand ground with chris at first um until ace pulls out the knife and then Teddy disappears. And right now, Gordy's nowhere to be seen, right? He's just had his breakdown. But Chris, in this moment that Ace is coming for him, is standing in front of him and he's not backing down.
0: Eventually, Ace is like, All right, I'm going to, as you wish, so to speak, I'm going to kill you. And Ace lunges at him and then the gun fires in the air. And this is kind of what you've been waiting for is like, When is this gun going to go off? When is this going to come into play? They literally haven't referred to it since they showed it, you know in screen time, uh, you know, an hour and 10 minutes earlier, the gun and Gordy has it. And a a new standoff happens, a new equilibrium where Gordy is pointing the gun at Ace. Ace is like, I don't believe you. And he's like, try me bitch and cocks it. And Ace is like, you can't kill all of us. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to kill all of you. I'm just going to kill you. And finally Ace backs down and is like, I'm going to get mine. Like I'll get you someday. And, And Gordy's like, bet I'll see about that. And, uh, so the villains run away. Hold on, we got to talk
1: ab- We got to talk about this. Like who the hell is this guy? It is literally not until he has one hand on Chris Chamber's head and that knife is like right up to this 12-year-old's neck.
0: He's I mean, I'm kind of
1: Yeah, I'm kind of with you. It's like the train scene. It's like I don't really believe these kids are going to die, but I kind of want to know what the writer and director were going for there. It's like am I supposed to believe that Kiefer Sutherland is about to just Slit this child's throat in front of like fifteen people. Like he literally gives yeah. that little a fucks. You're you're never in the audience. You're never once like worried about that
0: happening before the gun goes
1: off. Uh,
0: and yeah, you... it, it's it's subtle, but I think it would make a lot. Like it, this is the kind of thing you think about when you're writing an action scene is implications and the physics of everything. I think it would make a lot more sense if Ace picked up a a medium sized rock and is like. I'm gonna smash your face in, right? It's so, that been, but it's a, yeah. there's a big difference. It, and then if all of a sudden he like cocks it back and is about to hit him in the face with it, because that's something you could actually see. Yeah, a like it could hurt him, doing. but it
1: could kill him, and you would believe it. You're like, oh damn, he's got a he's got a stone like this could break his skull, uh, but it right. may not. Like that would have been a lot more digestible than putting a switchblade up to this kid's neck, which just. Watching the film, I'm like, well, he's clearly not going to. He just takes you out of the scene a little bit. But I will say, there is kind Uh, of a moment with Chris where I think that him standing guard or defying Ace, if you will, is a defining moment for Chris Chambers because you know the whole thing about that character, about River Phoenix's character, is that he's he doesn't have control over anything. He doesn't have control over how people perceive him. He can return the lunch money, and uh, he still gets suspended for three days. Everyone knows he's from a bad family. He can't control the fact that he's not going to go to college classes when they start junior high. He's going to be in shop classes with Vern and the rest of the guys just learning how to build birdhouses for the rest of his life. So there's so many things that he can't control, and it's kind of like in that last moment, Chris Chambers decides that, like, you know what? I can control this. Like, if you want to get to me, if you want to get to the Ray Brower body, you're going to have to go through me. You're going to have to kill me, Ace. Yep. And, I, and I think that part of the scene is, is really well done.
0: Obviously, the bad guys retreat after the gun and they feel like, you know, Gordy is, is meaning what he's saying. Um, Nuck if you buck, as, as they say. They return to town. Um, the gang, or really Gordy, ends up deciding, like, you know what, we can't even take credit for this. This is this is bigger than ourselves. You know, this is a, a kind of realizes, like, the loss of life and is like, now we can't benefit off this. So they end up making an anonymous call and give uh ray Brower this is due and then it kind of just narrates what happens to everybody's life which um you know normally you wouldn't have to do this but based on the nature of the story you definitely have to do this like if this wasn't about like nature and nurture and how kids turn out you could just end the story right here of there's them walking off into the sunset and you'd be fine but this story almost needed you just take a step back and say "Well, what happened to these kids and it does that um which to the credit of this film um, and to the novella. And this is a big difference between the two. Um, So Gordy kind of narrates as it shows uh, Vern and Teddy kind of like waving goodbye. It's like, I'll see you guys later. And it narrates what happens to both of them. So in the novel, or sorry, in the movie, it says Vern ended up having four kids, got married straight out of high school and ended up becoming a forklift forklift certified forklift
1: operator, baby. He got his forklift certification.
0: he got he got the, he hit the dream he hit the jackpot. Teddy ended up trying to join the army but couldn't because of his poor eyesight and ear injury, which I I didn't realize that like an ear injury could keep you out of the army, um, especially like in Vietnam, like when people are like drafted, <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah whatever like I guess. your ear looks kind of messed up, right? I guess you just got to sit at home. Anyways, uh, and then anyways he ended up sitting some jail time and then ended up getting some odd jobs around Castle Rock, um, and then him and chris both went to school together and it was revealed that chris was the one at the very beginning of the story who gordy read the story about who got stabbed while trying to break up a fight in a restaurant and yeah. that is like you just when that when you read that you're like damn that's what made him think i mean just like think put put yourself in his shoes it's not that you're just retelling like oh yeah i had this friend when you're 12 he died in some freak accident. It is him immediately retelling this story right after finding out that his childhood friend died in such a tragic way. So it just adds like such a weight where when you hear that moment, you're just like, oh, my gosh, It just it makes your heart drop a little bit.
1: Well, um, I, I think that the ending to this movie is very, very real. Uh, you described it earlier as melancholy, but there's a line when they get back to town. There's a couple lines that Richard Dreyfus as the narrator says After they find the body and they're heading back to Castle Rock, you know, they come into town, they cross the bridge, and he says something to the effect of, like, when we got back to town, it felt a lot smaller. You know, it's that old Mm -hmm. tale of going out into the world, experiencing new things, and you come back home, and it just, the whole place feels a little bit smaller. And then as he starts to tell what happened to Vern and to Teddy and to Chris Chambers, he says something to the effect of, like, you know, friends come and go through your life like table busters at a restaurant. Because, you know, him and Chris obviously maintained their friendship for several more years. But Vern and Teddy just kind of became faces that they saw in the hall in high school. Um, and that is a man, very, very... Dude, it's very real. It's it's a... I'm trying to think of another word other than melancholy. It, it's like it,
0: both true and really sad at the same time.
1: It is, man. Because you see how much... How tight this group is for an hour and a half on the journey. And, you know, in a lot of stories, like it maybe happily ever after... And even if it's not, you're still led to believe that these guys are going to be connected forever. But no, this is, this is much more authentic. It's like we had a great adventure on Labor Day weekend in 1959, but like, life goes on. And I think that really yeah. speaks to the theme of the movie. I, I, let me ask you this. I'd be interested to know, what do you think the theme of this movie is?
0: Well, let me, I'll answer that by concluding our story. And I think okay. our, our the, the true conclusion of our story, I think, kind of answers that in a, in a weird way. After all of that explanation, the last forty-five seconds of the film is it shows Richard Dreyfus finishing his story at his computer in his house, and then his in children day, come up, yeah. and his children are begging him to keep him, you know, to to let them go swimming or to take them swimming, and he's like, "All right, just give me a second and he goes back to his computer and he finishes his story. And he's got this—he literally types out everything you've heard up to that point. And then he types in one last paragraph, and it says, I never had any friends later on, like the ones I had when I was 12. And he kind of thinks for a second, and he goes, Jesus, does anyone? And I think that's—like, that gives me chills. It does, and my hair
1: just stood up on my arm. I—when I I first—even when I rewatched this earlier in the week and it didn't slap for me, like, when I got to that scene, those closing lines— I never had any friends later on, like the ones I did when I was 12. Jesus, does anyone? That, God, I mean, dude, that hits you right in the gut. Because it's so true. It's like, even though I, bro, Andy, you know, your usual, you know, shout out to Andy who's on paternity leave. I've known Andy since before I was 12. But like, there's something about that, even if you have the same friend, it's not like you were when you were 10 or 11 or 12, when you're in that that golden era, dude, where you do anything for each other. Like, that t- speaks to me on a really, really personal level, um, and I think that th- I think that honestly, you know, this uh, you could argue if this is a top 100 movie or not, but I think that that, as far as closing lines are concerned, maybe like a top 10. I think that's Dude, op-
0: opening opening and closing lines. Like if you were to pair to pair the two together and be like, all right, give me the top 15 movies of all time that have like both opening and closing lines. It's pretty hard to beat that. The first time I saw a dead body was when I was thirteen. You know that, and that line is pretty hard to beat. And I can I can I add one more thing? Sure. Uh, that line is script. That is not that is not a novella. novella. That's not Stephen King's. No, not Stephen King's. That's not a Nisas or Stephen King's. So it's it, yeah. I, I was reading it earlier, and it, it's not like his, the ending of this is kind of like. Uh, it's just like talking about how they died, and he's like, "As for me, I'm a writer now." And I'm like, "Okay, that's pretty. That feels very, very mailed in." Like if I ended a story like if, if I ended a 200 page story like that, I would, I would have. That's like a first draft thing. Like I don't know.
1: So you're saying that you think the movie's so better than the novella?
0: I actually do by by a pretty significant margin for a few reasons, um, and that's actually something I wanted to talk about. Um, I think that this. I think that the novella I will say this the novella crawled so that the movie could walk right that whole adage um obviously the story wouldn't have the the story of the movie wouldn't have happened if the novella didn't happen but I think the novella took too many steps to making it just a really dramatic sad story about childhood that is really doesn't mirror mirror real life at all and it's almost like it ends in such a like a because the novella ends with just like three pages straight of how his friends died. And then just being like, I cried for 30 minutes straight when I heard the news. And it's like, okay, that's... It's very Stephen King where it's like, they go over the top about death. In fact, when the scene when when they find the dead body and it's pouring rain and lightning and stuff, he spends like a page talking about all the things that Ray Brower won't do. You know, he'll never pull the ponytail of a girl that he loves in his class when his teacher is not looking. He'll never he'll never ride a bike in the wind and blah, blah. blah. And it's like, okay, I get it. He's dead. Right. Like, so there's a bit of the, it's Stephen King. Like it's great, but it also has lines where you're like, okay, let me just skim past this. You know, he gets very wordy. Um, so I think that the, the movie does a better job of getting to the point and making it poignant. And then also another thing that I think that the movie has that the books don't have is the child acting is phenomenal. We didn't really talk about this. We talked about the names, but the child acting is phenomenal. Uh, all all four of them do just such a good job of like line delivery and and even when they're not speaking, uh, of just acting like these the twelve year olds that they're supposed to be. But then also the score i think absolutely. oh
1: dude yeah the music in this score thing is incredible the buddy holly to lollipop by the yep. cordettes like it's all done dude, from...
0: lollipop starts i was like damn i'm about to download this on spot yeah yeah yeah. It's, it, it hit know, it a perfect moment the
1: soundtrack you know and i mean i mean it's a it's kind of a i guess you would you call this a period piece it's obviously based you know back in the 50s um soundtrack slaps dude you know as far as the child acting goes i did read and this is kind of harping back to something you said at the beginning of the pod. I read about how Rob Reiner casted these kids. Corey Feldman was the, sound like the easiest cast. He came in and read the lines for Teddy. Teddy was supposed to be portrayed as this very angry child. And if you know anything about Corey Feldman, I, I guess his parents were going through divorce. I also think he was abused. I know he was sexually abused later on. Uh, but he yeah. was also, I think, like physically abused or had some you know star parents that were very tough on him and so
0: yeah he think, clearly went through a lot like yeah, famously went through a lot
1: right and so that you know it, and basically what i had heard is that all these characters fit those roles really well like uh, jerry o'connell came in and just made rob reiner and all them laugh really hard and they are like okay this is clearly verne and river phoenix had this very palpable confidence and stuff they're like okay that's our that's our chris chambers and so They all fit very well. I also heard that the director had put them in basically through two weeks of like a boot camp where they did impromptu theater, um, not class, they did impromptu theater stuff um, and worked with each other and by the end of those two weeks that they were actually very much like a group of four friends. Jerry O'Connell was credited with saying like, hey, when you see us like clowning around on camera And we're like hugging each other or wrestling or whatever. He's like, that was all authentic. Like we'd spent a lot of time together and like we were actually good friends at that point. I do want to harp back on what I think probably is the theme of this movie. Because again, I watched it twice this week. And, you know, the first time that I watched it earlier in the week, I hadn't seen the movie in, I don't know, five or ten years. I'd seen it damn near a half dozen times before. So I know it's it's a short movie. It's like an hour and 30 minutes, hour and 40 minutes. It's very punchy. So the first time, you know, I went into it remembering a couple things about this movie, aside from the specific scenes. I was just like, yeah, this is a movie about four friends, and it's about nostalgia and this. But when I rewatched it, what I kind of realized is like, this this story is not about childhood. It's not about friendship. It's It's about changes in life. And it's about how, like, if you focus too much on the past you're at risk of getting stuck in the past forever. Like you look at, you look at um, Gordy's parents and like, they are stuck in the past. Their, their oldest son has died. And like, they are, the dad is very lactose and like, they just look completely drained and void of life. And they can't get over that. And, you know, you've got every, each one of these characters is dealing with something that's just holding them down. Chris Chambers is held down by the identity of his family name that he can't get over and in the protagonist Gordy is held down by his brother's death as well and but instead what happens is like at least for a couple of the characters they overcome that like Gordy ends up listening to Chris and he pursues his writing and he ends up becoming a writer and conversely like in the last scene when Gordy you know pulls the gun on Ace and stands up for Chris that's kind of like the catalyst for Chris to go into junior high and actually try to you know, overcome his family's reputation and, and do those college classes. And guess what? He ends up becoming an attorney. And so to me, it this movie, like on the surface, yeah, it may be about childhood. It may be about, you know, running around with your friends in sort of that endless summer era. But beneath the surface, there's a lot more going on. It's really about that change is inevitable. And, you yeah. know, you have these fleeting moments, these golden moments with people, these friends that come and go through your life like bussers at a restaurant. And you can appreciate them for what they are, but they can't last forever. And, and you can't stay there forever and not grow. Yeah,
0: it, it is true that to no fault of either party, people come and go from your life. And it doesn't always have to be dramatic, like how in the novel, again, in the novel, and I, I don't know if I said this in this yet, but... Another thing that's like way too dramatic in this novel uh, and that Stephen King wrote uh, everyone dies like really soon after uh, oh. Ver, Vern dies in a in a house fire Teddy Teddy dies in a car accident and then obviously Chris's death is accurate but it's like okay why does everybody have to die and then they got to their point to be like uh, Ace is still alive and he is like lives in Castle Rock. And so I think part of what Stephen King maybe was trying to say is like, you know, life isn't fair. Um, another, another scene that's left out of the, of the movie in the, in the uh, novella, they go back to town after the body's discovered and they have an aside where Ace and his gang gets theirs, so to speak. And the crap out of Gordy and his friends. So I think that was Stephen King's way of being like, life isn't fair. And like sometimes, sometimes like, Uh, the truly crummy people end up like having an okay life after doing all the crummy stuff. So I don't know. You know, and I don't,
1: I I don't like that theme as much. If that, maybe that's what Stephen King was going for. I will say this, the theme that I think the movie presents, I think is really, really strong. Whether they would have shown these guys getting their ass beat by Ace back in town or not, just this idea. uh, And kind of like you said, like when you're young and you watch this, it doesn't hit you as hard because You still have all your friends from grade school. You know, if you're 13, 14, 15, watching this movie for for the first time, you can't see this with crystal clear eyes, but watching it now, like over 30, and having had so many friends come and go, not only from grade school, but through junior high and high school and college and even thereafter, man, it hits you in your feels.
0: The novella doesn't really hit me as hard because it's so dramatic, like people are dying in fires and shit like it's it's it gets too stephen kingy for me and it's like i don't really need right. that like you're not really you're not really speaking to the themes you're just going over the top with dramaticism like the whole again i i said this earlier but the whole scene where it it spends a page and a half going over the things that ray brower won't do it's like i don't really need that um but i think the novel does a good or sorry the, the movie does a good point of of hitting those high points, of showing the themes and showing what's kinda left out there. Again, it's I said this a little bit earlier. I think that this movie is not as quite as entertaining as you want it to be, like thirty minutes in to like an hour and fifteen in, but once you're done with it, you're kinda like this hits me in the feels, like you said. Like yep. it it hits the high points. It when you're done with it, I think I think the opening line mirrored with the last like five minutes is uh it's telling
1: the payoff's really good and it's a good use of narration you know that can go one of two ways in storytelling i feel like using using the narrator uh and i think it's done really well in this story in terms of setting the framework and then also kind of like setting the follow-up you know you can't watch these kids grow up but you know this idea that like hey by the way just like you in the audience like these guys are not going to be friends forever Um, and it's not it's not like they're not cool i mean you know the the main character talks about he's clearly like in his 40s at that point he's like i haven't seen chris chambers in 10 years so it's not like they stopped talking to each other out of high school they just slowly went different ways but that you know like he says he'd never had any more friends like that later on in life and no one else does
0: and dude there's something to that we're like there are people that in, in both of our lives that we both know of who like you haven't seen them in forever, but like if you see each other, it's right back to how it was.
1: Oh, dude, 100%. I mean, a couple of years ago, I went to my 10-year high school reunion, and I remember when I went, like there was a lot of people ta- that didn't go that I'm still good friends with. They were like, man, I don't want to go to that, this, this, and this. I'll tell anyone listening right now, dude, go to your 10-year high school reunion. I thought it was so fun. We went to a big high school. I went there, like everyone, didn't matter if you were a jock or a nerd or A goth you know we went to high school around 2008 ish like we had a bunch of different weird groups but like man everyone had their guard down and it was really refreshing because you kind of remember people how they were but like look life happens like i'm i'm actually reading this book right now on the side um called sapiens this is way off topic and it uh it talks about how like your average person can only maintain up to about 150 interpersonal relationships before like it just mm. gets too much to handle, like, and, and I'm talking about like people you may go to church with or like girlfriends and, and friends. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. We've all we've all got more than 150 friends on Facebook, hopefully. But like, let's be honest, most of those people are just kind of soft acquaintances, and you don't really even know what the hell they're up to. The book's saying you know you can only have this many relationships before you're capped out, and obviously that becomes harder. Like you go as you move on from school and you get more responsibilities and you buy a house and you have kids and you have work and you've got to go to kids soccer games. Like you have less and less time. And you know, the deal with Gordy and Chris chambers probably wasn't that that like, it's not like they ever weren't friends. It's just like, man, life happens. And that is one thing about this story that I think a lot of coming of age stories don't highlight, or maybe they don't get the opportunity to highlight, but I think it's kind of sought out as a theme of stand by me. It's something that makes it unique. And to your point, you know the payoff at the end of this movie is really, really strong for the audience because of that. I think it's something that everyone can identify with. Great movie, dude. I mean, it, it's after rewatching it, I how would you how how would you rank it? I'm gonna give it a eight out of ten. And the Rotten Tomatoes reviews for this thing are in the 90s on both sides, critics and yeah. audience. You know, when I watched it earlier in the week, if you would have asked me that question, I feel like I would have given it a seven out of a ten just to be generous. But I really needed yeah. to rewatch it again to digest what the what the themes what the movie was trying to tell me and it is strong. I can't deny that. There's a reason it's a classic. I'm gonna give it an eight out of ten as a movie. But, dude, as far as the idea of the film and the themes, I'm gonna give it a ten out of a ten. I mean, I, I like yeah. I, for for what it for its uniqueness and kind of what it's trying to say. I don't think we get this message. A lot of other media and it's obviously something that's very real that's the reason that people yeah. kind of connect to this so yeah i mean i think that is what ultimately carries it and it's 10 out of 10 as far as an idea is
0: concerned i try not to rank things in the sevens because i feel like that's an easy out and some and look i'm that's not saying i won't do that in the future but uh i'm gonna try to avoid that in this film i would say right after i watched this film my inclination was to say it's like a 6.5 for all of the like technical reasons that i said earlier but i think i'm gonna say an eight i think i'm gonna agree with you like yeah. straight up an eight because i don't want to rate it any higher than an eight and i certainly don't want to rate it any lower like in going to the seven range um i think that i love the character structure of how you've got these four young boys you've got the you have the control character and Gordy you've got the unhinged character you've got the you've got the kind of like badass character and you've got the like fat kind of like uh unconfident character they kind of represent different moods or, or vibes that a that a young boy can have and they all carry the weight of their family's expectations or lack of expectations differently and i think what the movie says about childhood and growing up and Again, as I said before, nurture versus nature. I think it's super impactful. If I were to be critical, and I, and I think it's important to point out, as I've pointed, as I've said, the there are some structure difficulties, both with the novella and with the novel. I think they put some of the really heavy-handed stuff way too early. I think they put some of the lighthearted, fun and game stuff way too late. I think some of the dialogue was very heavy-handed in the movie. I think in the novella, I think the technical aspect kind of drags some of it down. The placement of some of the lighthearted
1: scenes and stuff could have been mixed around but I also play devil's advocate in the fact that like hey dude this film's an hour and a half. It would be one thing if this was a two plus hour damn near three hour film and they were kind of throwing this stuff at us like could we move some things around or could we move some things around and make this even stronger? Probably. I I never felt like I was getting held back or drained by this thing. Like it's pretty short and punchy uh, and the payoff at the end is huge with a really unique theme. So it's yeah. you know it's a good watch. And yeah, if you if you have if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Stand By Me, you've obviously heard all the spoilers, dude. It's on Netflix till the end of the month. You need to go fire it up.
0: It's strong, man. Well, anyways, I appreciate you for joining. This has been a fun episode and really like an underrated film. I would say it's it's getting lost Lost in Lexicon. Highly recommend you go rewatch it if you haven't. Um, can't say enough about it. No, me neither. Anyway, this is Novel Discourse. We appreciate you for listening. If you like what you heard, please like and subscribe. Give us a rating, but most importantly, tell a few of your friends. We greatly appreciate that. Um, this is Novel Discourse. I'm Sam. I'm Webb. We'll see you next time. Peace. Adios.